when Andy gave me uh, the subject I'm going to preach on this morning to preach on, because we're continuing in, Le in Leviticus, we're nearly at the end of the series, don't get too excited. I read it and I thought, okay, but the more I got into it, the more I got excited by it. And to be honest, I found the whole thing, and including this morning's service and the context of it, quite emotional. Um, my mother was probably the greatest, well, definitely the greatest influence of my life by a long, long way. She was astonishing in that she managed to get me as a young child so fascinated by the Bible, I, I was just excited by it. So even so, you know, when I was too young to go to the evening meetings, my parents were Salvation Army officers. So when I was too young to go to the evening meetings, my mother would stay in with me. She'd ask me what I wanted to do. And I would say, can we have a Bible quiz? Can you imagine that? Now, somehow my mother must have managed to sort of just entice that. And since, since I was tiny, I wanted to know what the Bible says about Jesus. But more than that, since I was tiny, my mother bred in me a desire for heaven and a desire to be with the Lord in glory, which has never left me, which dominates every day of my life and excites me. So hold on to your horses. We're going to have a long reading and then I'll try and explain what on earth that's got to do with heaven. All right. Just before I get into it, two just very practical things, if I may. One is Andy's asked me to take over the... Uh, arrangement of door stewarding so if anybody's interested have a word with me that's the welcome duty and the other one is uh, i discovered that not everybody knows that every week or every day rather we produce a daily devotional which I, I write and send out and if you want to receive that i need to have your email address and have your permission to send it to you so if you're not getting them every every day and you want to have them every day instructions uh, if you want to get them every day, then uh, uh, just see me. Okay, we're going to read Leviticus chapter 25. And we're going to read all of it. Be warned, there are 55 verses. Okay, here we go. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants and hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Count seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. You still with me? Okay. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then sound the trumpet everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month on the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. 
In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Big breath. Here we go. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. When you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. You still with me? Okay, right. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property to the nearest relative, Sorry, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance of the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay what was sold, sorry, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, it will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption for a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to, to be returned in the Jubilee. But houses and villages without walls around them are to be considered as belonging to the open country. They can be redeemed and are to be returned in the Jubilee. The Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in the Levitical towns which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is a house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned in the Jubilee because the houses in the towns of the Levites are the property among the Israelites, are their property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to their towns must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. Now you understand why I just found it a little tricky at first to get excited when I read this, but bear with me, we keep going. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your follow fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants, 
whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right uh, of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or a blood relative in their clan may redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price of their release is to be based on the rate paid to a hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay for their redemption to a larger share, uh, sorry, pay for their redemption a larger share of the price paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must see to it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Yeah. It's, how do I put this? It's all to do with how God prepared the people of Israel for the time when they would enter the promised land, because each different tribe of Israel were to be given a different allotment within the land. And what is fascinating about this, starting with, if you like, the year of Sabbath, is that even within the created order, the principle of Sabbath rest is enshrined. And long before people really fully understood it, the common sense of the fact that you can't keep working land endlessly, endlessly, endlessly without it becoming unproductive was there. This was just straightforward farming common sense. Let the land rest. Yes, you can pick stuff as it's growing to eat yourself, but you can't harvest it for a profit. All that kind of thing's going on. And then as you go on, you realize that the year of Jubilee is, is like the Sabbath on steroids. Um, you've got every seventh year is, is the Sabbath year, but at the end of the seventh, seventh Sabbath year is the Jubilee year, which is another Sabbath in which you can't do any of these things again. But the difference this time is every 50 years, regardless of what's been going on in those previous 50 years, the people of Israel had a reset. If they'd fallen on hard times, had to sell themselves as slaves or, or were in uh, comparative destitution and, and living on handouts, everything was reset. They could go back to their own land, to their own property and their own people, and it all started again. You sometimes wonder if the idea of social security uh, could learn a little bit from the principles behind this. And, and of course, if you were 
buying or selling property or crops or, or, or land that made crops or even people, as you could in those days, if you were doing that, it would be crazy if with only three years to go before the Jubilee, you had to pay the same price as if you bought something 40 years before the Jubilee. So the price sort of diminished as you got near the Jubilee. So if there's only a year to go, you don't pay that much because you know everything's going to be reset. Everything's going to, going to go back. Are you still with me? Have you lost the will to live? Let me read the words of Jesus. This is Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as, he was, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, the truth is about the long passage I read from Leviticus, its main relevance was only to the people of Israel at the time. There is nothing in there in terms of what we actually have to practically do, which is applicable to us. Yeah. You know, every 50th year, God doesn't want us to research our family tree, find if our ancestors had any property and go and knock on the door and say, excuse me, can I have it back, please? That's not what's being said here. This was how the people of Israel were to organize themselves to make sure that people didn't stay in poverty, to make sure that people could be set free and all that kind of stuff. So there are, there are principles undergirding it, which are still relevant to us to, to ensure that we have a structure for enabling people to start again in practical ways. But there's a spiritual relevance to this, which we need to get hold of. When Jesus began his ministry and applied those words from Isaiah 61 to himself, he was saying something quite profound about the freedom and the reset which he was going to offer through his sacrifice at Calvary, through, through being crucified on the cross. There's a, a new way of looking at life, all because of what he did. In fact, you could say that when Jesus died, everything changed. Literally, everything changed. Because hope became possible for humanity. Can you imagine the people of Israel, particularly those who had fallen on hard times as the Jubilee year got nearer? Can you imagine them? You know, only two more years to go. Two more years and we'd be out of this. Two more years, two more years, one more year, one more year. And the last month must have seemed like an eternity. It always does, doesn't it, when, when something's happened? Within the Christian life, there are two things which we need to get hold of. One is the freedom that God has given us in Jesus now and how that compares with what he offers us in eternity in heaven to come. They're related to each other. And it's like we get now a kind of, uh, well, more than a down payment because it's real and it's full, but we get all the freedom now within a, a context which is still captive, within a world which is still in trouble, within a, 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 
an environment of fear, an environment of sin, an environment of evil is there. We get the freedom that Jesus offers, but we still have to battle it out. When we get to glory, the battle's over. All right, let's see if I can get you excited. Here we go. Let me tell you about what Jesus offers to restore to us. Jubilee year was about restoration. Jesus offers us permanent jubilee, okay? Permanent jubilee. Firstly, he restores our freedom. In John 8, 36, we're told, if the sun sets you free, Jesus, that is Jesus, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. In Romans 8. I'll get there in a minute. In Romans 8, we find these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The death of Jesus dealt totally and finally and fully with the penalty and guilt of sin. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay whatever was required to atone for sin. And by God's spirit, who he places within the lives of those who put their trust in Jesus, we are offered the opportunity not just to be free from the, the guilt of sin, but the power of sin day by day. In, in the Adam and Eve uh, story in, in the book of uh, Genesis, Adam's sin gave authority over the whole of humankind to Satan. The authority that God had given to him because of his disobedience, he kind of gave over to Satan. When Jesus died, that authority was snapped, totally broken. Satan, the evil one, has not the slightest authority over anyone who puts their trust in Jesus because Jesus has legally bought it back, brought it back. We have restored freedom. Getting there, getting there. So every time Satan comes along and starts whispering in your ear or my ear what a lousy person you are, or am I the only one who ever hears that whisper in my ear? Yeah. Every time we fall short of the standards we even set for ourselves, they go, oh, Lord, I just, you know. Satan tries to condemn us, but Paul tells us there's no condemnation because Jesus has borne the penalty of all sin. We are free. Now, that freedom should be used to walk in freedom and to grow in holiness, to become more like Jesus. All that is true. But nothing can take away from the fact that for all eternity, because of Jesus' death, once you put your trust in him, you are free. No evil source of any kind has any authority over you. One of my favorite uh, things I often say is this. The weakest Christian at their weakest moment has total authority over Satan. The only problem is, in our weakest moment, we don't believe it. But it doesn't stop it being true. So, restored freedom, restored sight. Jesus said he'd come to restore sight to the blind. Now, that was physically uh, true, true in the, the blind people that Jesus healed, like Bartimaeus. And that kind of ministry should still be part of the, the Christian church. But I believe Jesus was speaking of a restored perspective as well. He was speaking about being able to recognize truth. In all the, the myriad of voices of different uh, ideologies which clamor for, for attention in our world, Jesus remains the one who says, I am truth. I am truth. It's to be found nowhere else. And by his spirit, he offers to lead his people into all truth. You've not just been made free. You've been given the opportunity to see properly 
because of Jesus' death, because he's taken away the veil, taken away the blindness. <sighs> okay, restored freedom, restored sight, restored purity. Ooh. Really? I still occasionally, I used to do it years ago, still occasionally like to tease people and say, you know, Christians say, would you like to be holy? And you can see them wrestling with what the answer should be to that. Because they know they should say yes. But they also know that if they say yes, they're kind of saying, well, that, that's impossible. And so they go, well, I'd rather just be an ordinary Christian. Thank you. And yet, what God offers us, what God offers us is mind-blowing through what Jesus has done. Because what he does is he, he takes our sinful state. He doesn't just forgive us, but he clothes us. He wraps us up in the righteousness that is Jesus Christ, in the holiness that is Jesus Christ. Therefore, God declares you and me holy before him. God's not daft. He knows we still have battles to fight, but he has chosen because Jesus is our representative dying for us on the cross because of what he has achieved. He's chosen to clothe us in that righteousness which belongs to Jesus. Our first parents were in a state of innocence until they uh, succumbed to Satan's lies and sin entered them and has infected the whole of the human race ever since. The problem is that only the holy can come into the presence of God. And the innocence of Adam and Eve couldn't be restored, so Jesus went one better. You see, their, their innocence was a, an innocence of unawareness. And we are aware of sin. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus goes one better. One better. He doesn't just restore our innocence in the sense of uh, being unaware. He makes us innocent in the sense of being declared totally not guilty before God. I am holy. I don't always live like it, but God's declared it. Purity. And, and by his spirit, God is continually seeking to work in us and work in us and stir in us and stir in us that desire to live up to what he has placed in us by his spirit. That we live by the spirit. The more we live by the spirit, the more we put aside the works of the flesh, the more we get it right. In the declaration of holiness, which covers us to keep us safe, God wants us to grow and develop and to become more like Jesus. That's the goal of life. In uh, Philippians and uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and Paul says this, <clears throat> talking about uh, all the things that he had going for him in his life. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Everything else in comparison is of no value. So, how are we doing? Not bad. Restored freedom, restored sight, restored purity, permanent jubilee, restored sonship. 
you think, hang on, this is Mother's Day. Um, okay, let's put it in context. As Adam and Eve uh, were in the innocent state, the Bible describes this picture of them walking in a relationship of great intimacy with God. They, they would walk with God in the garden. Can you imagine that? They talk to him, they share with him. There's, there's no shame, no barriers, just nothing, nothing in the way at all. And this relationship was fractured by sin and rebellion. And all human beings now are far from God in their natural state. But Jesus came as the son of God. And according to the Bible, as we put our trust in Jesus Christ, God chooses to, to declare us sons of God. He chooses to identify with, with Jesus. The Bible even describes Jesus as, as our heavenly brother in that sense. We become children of God, born again, to use the phrase which is precious, but somehow became hackneyed over the years. How? I don't know. Maybe it's to do with Volkswagen Golfs, those of you who remember the adverts on TV. Yeah. Born again. We are made new people. We are made children of God by the grace of God when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters equally, yes, the reason the stress is on sonship is because within the context of those days, only sons could inherit. But male or female makes no difference. We're all sons in terms of inheritance. Everything that Jesus has, he makes available to us. That's what the Bible says. You excited yet? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? One of the things that he was given when he returned was the ring on the finger. The ring that symbolized sonship. The father who'd longed so much for the wanderer to return saw him a long way off. One of the most moving stories in the Bible. You know? And this father, I, I like to picture him as an old man, probably my age, I guess, uh, an old man looking and saying, is that him? Is that him? And hitching up his whatever he was wearing and sprinting as much as an old man could sprint to get to the returning child. And this boy, adult boy, says, is going to say, Father, I have sinned. He probably gets as far as, as, far as Father, I have, and suddenly, boom. That's how God sees those who return. And sonship is the most precious gift. He was brought back into the family. He was brought back to the table. He was brought back to inheritance. That's what God does. Permanent jubilee. And now finally, and forgive me if I take a little bit longer, a restored home. A restored home. You know, according to the Bible, Adam and Eve had the task of filling the earth and subduing it and making it just like the Garden of Eden. And their rebellion saw them expelled from the garden and taken away from access to the tree of life. We've already had it read, but I need to do it again. Do you remember the book of Revelation? I'll read another bit first. I'll read 21 verses uh, 1 to 4 first, which is the same as we had read. And then chapter 22, listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Chapter 22, the first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And he will reign forever and ever. You know, Paul once said, if in this life we have hope, we are of all people most to be pitied. And let me be frank. Uh, for me, life on earth is, is, is good. I've got a great family, hugely blessed. But let's be honest, life's not what it should be. It hurts. The unjust prosper and comparatively good people often fall by the wayside. It's out of kilter. Things aren't the way they're meant to be. People die. We know grief, we know sadness and tears flow. They really do. But one day, but one day, Either Jesus is going to come and I'll still be alive and I'll be taken up to be with him or I'm going to die and I'm going to be with him that way. One day, I'm going to be with Jesus and there'll be not the slightest sadness, not the faintest tear. There'll be no mourning. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Sin will be a thing of the past. It'll be gone and long gone. And life will be the way it's meant to be. And I can't wait. I really can't wait. I have waiting for me in glory so many people that I really, really, really want to see again. Not just my mother, but he probably comes top of the list. But a whole host of people who've trusted in Jesus, who've lived their lives seeking to serve him, who had such an influence in my life, and there's going to come a day when I will be with them. The daft part is when that day comes, I'll be much more absorbed in being with Jesus and with them. But at the moment, at the moment, I'm human. I, I, I'm limited. So that's how I feel. We used to say that when a saint died, they'd entered their Sabbath rest. Which brings us to where we started about the, the Sabbath year. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, the writer to the Hebrew says in Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. And he describes how in Jesus we can enter into God's Sabbath rest now in all the ways in which I've described it. But he also goes on and points towards that day when we will be with the Lord. 
we could talk a lot more about what Jesus has restored, but for today, let's just recognize that Jesus beckons us into perpetual jubilee with restored freedom, restored sight, restored purity, restored sonship with nothing to fear because he has promised to be with us at every moment of every day. And then don't forget, he's also restoring to us a home. As, he, as Jesus said in John 14, I've gone to get your room ready. I'm going to get your room ready. What's your room going to be like? Don't you think about that? I think about it every day in my limited and stupid way. Yeah, there'll probably be a little Salvation Army flag in the corner somewhere because it's been such an important part of my life. Yeah. Might even be a Newcastle shirt hanging somewhere as well because, you know, I don't know. But it's personal. When Jesus beckons us into the glory to come, he doesn't beckon us as this sort of anonymous mass into some kind of... He beckons us into that which he is preparing particularly and specially for us as individuals because he loves us. Oh, I remember as a child, my father would put on a record. Do you remember records? Oh, they've come back now, haven't they? Yeah, vinyl. And there's a guy called, I think his name was Keith Brunson. He used to sing um, Big Salvation Army Rally it was at. And it was, my home is in heaven. There'll be no parting there. All will be happy, glorious, bright and fair. There'll be no sorrow. And there will be no tears in that bright home far away. I haven't heard that since I was probably 18, but it's ingrained in my consciousness. I don't belong here. And if you are in Christ, you don't really belong here. You've got a homecoming. Oh, I could go on. So many songs, in fact, Rachel and I have been talking about songs, haven't we? And so many songs on this subject, they, they just flood through my mind. I thought about uh, when we all get to heaven, what a day. But we're not going to do that. We're going to hand back to the band. Let me pray first and then, uh, then the band will play. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that although there are bits of the Old Testament which seem so obscure, they have this wonderful ability to point forward to the fulfillment of all your ministry through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the restore restored uh, truth restored realities you've given to us in jesus help us to live in the reality of permanent jubilee but lord give us such a desire such a longing for home that every day of our lives lives in expectation of being with you help us in jesus name amen